Romans chapter 9 is our reading this morning, and we will read from verses 1 through 5. Romans 9, beginning at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father in heaven, we've read here that your word, your promises, your covenants, they are all about Jesus the Messiah, God over all, God manifest in the flesh. So Lord, open our eyes this morning to see Christ in the scriptures to behold him, to receive him by faith, that we might then go and eat this meal together and commune with you by faith and receive the grace we need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been telling a story. He opened this book that way. He framed Romans in terms of a gospel story, the good news that God promised beforehand through the Old Testament scriptures, a gospel that focuses on Jesus Christ, the son of David, declared the son of God through his resurrection from the dead, and now reigning over the nations in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. This gospel is for the Jew first, then for the Gentiles. And while this gospel saves apart from obedience to the law, it upholds the law, and the law and the prophets testify to it. This gospel makes believers children of Abraham, and plugs them into a story that fulfills Israel's story. The story of creation, the exodus, the journey to the promised land. Do you hear in that description, a summary really, of all of Romans so far, do you hear there the many references to Israel and the Old Testament? Paul's gospel story is grounded in the Old Testament. It fulfills a story that began with Israel. But if that is the case, why have so many of God's chosen people, the Jews, failed to embrace this part of the story? What do we do now that Israel's story, their own story, has come to a climax in Jesus the Messiah, but the main participants in the story thus far They have rejected that conclusion. That is not an outcome that many people in Jesus and Paul's day were expecting. And that then is a problem that Paul must now address here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. You see, as we considered several months ago, back when we began Romans, 
part of Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to address growing tensions in the church. Tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians. You see, the Jewish Christians, they were perhaps concerned that Paul's gospel was anti-law, anti-Jewish. They feared God had discarded Israel in the Old Testament, and maybe just the Jews needed to accept that. You see this if you read the book of Acts, especially the later chapters. The Jews are really suspicious of Paul, thinking he's always trying to subvert the law and and do things that God has forbidden. Well, some of those concerns stayed with Jews as they became believers. How does this Christian story relate to the Old Testament? And at the same time, there were many Gentile Christians in the church, and they would have been the majority, and perhaps they belittled the Jews. Perhaps they looked down on their traditions. Perhaps they viewed themselves as superior. I mean, look at what God is now doing among the Gentiles. I mean, who cares about the Jewish story and what is going to happen to it? The the Jewish Christians just need to conform to these ways. Stop being a bother. Those were live situations in the church. Well, how do you quell fears among one group and encourage humility among another group and thus unite a divided congregation around a common mission through the gospel, which Paul continues to place at the center of his message, even as he now addresses the problem of Israel's unbelief. And as he has done throughout this book, Paul will preach his gospel message. He'll give deep doctrinal truths by retelling Israel's story. And as he retells this story, he will highlight several things. God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's wisdom, God's severity, God's restoration, and God's glory. So as we come into Romans 9 through 11, don't don't look at them through too limited of a lens. Don't just think, okay, these are kind of the middle chapters that talk about some strange things about Israel, and I don't really know what's going on here. We could just skip this and get to the obedience part in Romans chapter 12. No, these are integral to the book. But at the same time, don't think, okay, we've gotten all this truth, all this story. Now we'll talk about predestination, and then we'll go on to talk about how we can obey. Again, this isn't just a textbook giving us certain truths. This is truth in the guise of a story leading to God's glory and our good. So we want to see how these chapters help hold the book together. And of course, we want to hear what they say to us, where we are in our lives. You see, the key to understanding what God is doing in history, what God is doing among people groups, what God might be doing in a country, what God might be doing in a church, and what God is doing in your life, the way to understand that is to understand the big story that God is telling, to know what God is up to in history, and then to know your place in that story. And Paul is going to introduce for us that big story now in these opening verses that we've read today. It'll take us a few weeks to get through the whole story, but he'll introduce it for us today. So let's begin today to understand the story God is telling you. And there's three aspects of this story I want to highlight. The first is this. 
You want to know God. I'll explain what I mean by that. But the first thing you need to understand about your place in God's story is you want to know God. You see, this section begins with Paul expressing his anguish at Israel's unbelief that many of his fellow countrymen do not know God. Notice again the opening verses. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. After the climax of Romans 8, the triumphant declaration that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul's thoughts immediately turn to a group of people who, at the moment, and for the most part, are separated from the love of Christ. His fellow kinsfolk, the Jews. Now, how do we know that Israel is separated from Christ's love? Well, look at what he says in verse 3. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Paul uses the word cursed, and then he immediately defines it by the phrase, cut off from Christ. To be cursed is to be separated from Christ. And furthermore, this is the same word Paul uses in Galatians 1. You know that fiery declaration, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Paul imagines that Israel is currently in a state of being cursed. That is, they are cut off from Christ. And Paul is imagining this situation where, okay, maybe I could be cursed and cut off from Christ if that meant they no longer would be. So that's the situation he imagines they are in. Now, I'll say more about that idea in a moment of Paul wanting to trade places with them. But first, notice Paul seems somewhat surprised and confused that Israel is in this situation. Look again, at pick up in verse 4. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Adding to the fact of Paul's anguish is the fact that it seems Israel's heritage should have prepared them to embrace Jesus the Messiah. And I'm not going to labor over the details of these items and, and talk about where they all occur in the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that. I do want you to notice the main ideas. What is it that Paul's saying about the Jews? Well, first notice he names them as Israelites. So not just Jews and ethnic identification, but Israel, the chosen people through whom God's salvation would come. He identifies them as God's adopted sons. That's what God said to Pharaoh. Israel is my son. Let my firstborn child go. And God had rescued Israel in accordance 
with his promises. And they had seen God's glory. They had enjoyed his presence. They knew about his covenants. And those covenants promised salvation through the Messiah. They had received God's law and word. They had the sacrificial system and the patriarchs. Again, these are all things in the Old Testament that point to God's promises. And lastly, above all, Jesus the Messiah, God manifest in the flesh, came from their nation. Israel gave Messiah to the world. How can they not believe? Israel embracing Jesus, that should have been the natural culmination of their heritage. But now he's come. And for the most part, Israel has rejected him. What do we do now? The story has taken a left turn no one anticipated. And that only complicates Paul's grief as he ponders this problem of their unbelief. And so I think the first question I would ask at the outset is to say, okay, do you know God? You know, to address the real situation that sometimes among God's covenant people, there are those who do not know God. And I don't say that to shame you so much as to say we want you to know God. That's why the covenant community is structured this way. That's why there's so much scripture and worship and reminders of God's gospel when we gather together. We preach the good news week after week in this assembly because we want you to know God. And you want to know God. Why? Because falling under his curse is an awful reality. We don't want you to experience that. You don't want to experience that. You want to know God. And you can through Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, God come in the flesh. So you want to know God. Let's move on to the second idea. And now let's look at these verses again. Let's look at them from the perspective of a Christian. And let me say this, you should reflect God. Let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes. So on the one hand, you've got the Israelites who don't know God. There's an application there for us. But here's this application for us from the perspective of Paul. Let's put ourselves in his shoes as he experiences this grief over the state of his fellow Jews, as we saw in verse 2, Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That is strong language, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. And Paul calls God to testify that he's telling the truth, not because there's probably great doubts about his integrity, but just to say, this is how serious this is. I'm not lying. My conscience agrees with me and the Holy Spirit confirms my conscience. This is my state when I think about Israel. Quite frankly, Paul's words sound like someone in a state of grief. One author writes, when you're in that state, everything that happens, every word you hear, every sight you see is colored by the fact that something has gone desperately wrong. Applying this to Romans, the same author writes, the end of Romans 8 was and is glorious, meant to lead us to one of the highest points of Christian celebration and reflection. But in the present life, 
Such moments are always balanced by the sorrowful realization of the dark shadow which the bright light now casts. You can see that in what Paul's doing. He writes Romans 8 and he's rejoicing. He's confident in Christ. He's joyful in Christ. But then the memory returns. I'm experiencing that. Many Gentiles are experiencing that. But my countrymen, my fellow Jews, they are not experiencing that. And that memory grieves him. And moves him to pray, I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. If me being cursed could free them from the curse, well, I might take that. Now, when I say those words, maybe you're wondering, and many have asked this as they come to the verse. Okay, was Paul really willing to trade his salvation for Israel's. Is, is that an attitude that we should have as we think about unbelievers? Well, the verb that's translated, I could wish, it could be translated as, I could almost wish, or for I would pray. In other words, maybe this is an expression of Paul's heart, but he stops just short of actually praying this. That is an option. But at the same time, Paul's words echo Moses' prayer to God after Israel's sin with the golden calf. In Exodus 32, 32, Moses pled, but now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. As an intercessor for sinners, Moses was willing to stand in the gap between the people and God and plead for God's mercy, even if that meant risking himself. And maybe we should also hear an echo of Abraham here, who kept praying for God's mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah, even if it would extend to only 10 people. And so as I read these words and thought about this this week, friends, I asked myself, and I think we have to ask ourselves, do we ever experience anything close to grief like this over the state of the lost? I mean, does the heaviness of their reality ever hit you? And do you allow yourself just to sit with it for a few minutes? And if you do, do you do anything about it? You see, for Paul, the fate of his countrymen moved him to action. And what did he do? First, he prayed. So regardless of how we understand his prayer in verse 3, In chapter 10, verse 1, he writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So pray for your friends. Pray for your family members who do not know Christ. Pour out your heart to God and beg him for mercy there. And there's no hint here that Paul says, okay, I'll do that for a certain amount of time, and then they've had enough chance. You pour out your heart to God who alone knows what he will do. Second, Paul worked for the salvation 
of the laws. In Acts 17, Paul goes to the Areopagus. This is a public place where people gather to discuss philosophy or religion, as we would call it, and Paul preaches the gospel to them. He tells them the truth, that Jesus is the unknown God whom they need to know. Now, I love Paul's strategy here. I think we can learn a lot from it living in a post-Christian context. Paul is also respectful as he talks to these people. He goes to a place where they expect to talk about these things. He's not showing up on a street corner and startling people. This is where people gather to talk about these things. Paul went there. And as he goes there and begins his speech, he is respectful. He identifies what the Greek poets have gotten right. And then he tries to nudge his audience towards the truth that God has revealed. So he doesn't go in there and start putting them down. You people are silly. You people are backwards. You're you're primitive pagans. Don't you know any better? There's a heritage here you should know about. No, he doesn't go in as superior. He doesn't act like Christianity is so obvious. He goes into those who don't know the truth. And he speaks the truth. And he speaks the truth in love because he cares about their souls. So he prayed for the lost. He worked for the salvation of the lost. And lastly, Paul did nothing to obstruct God's mission. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, Greeks, I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. For Paul, the mission trumped everything. And that was the basis on which he made his major decision. And I would tell you just to pray and ponder how you could be a part of that. I've heard stories of people joining a church and they talk about getting saved in their college years. And when this person I have in mind got saved, he told his good friend and his good friend got out a prayer journal from middle school and said, I've been praying for you to become a Christian since middle school. Kid got saved in college. Don't stop praying for people. Maybe you're not called to ministry in the sense that God has told you to go proclaim the gospel verbally, but God has given you gifts and God has given you opportunities to love and serve others and to work for the good of his creation and for the renewal of all things through Christ. Whatever your place is, do it as unto the Lord and try, pray, For God to give you a heart attitude like what we see from Paul here. You see, over the past months, I've read a lot of articles. And I've listened to a lot of Christians talk about the church and the culture. And much of what I've heard doesn't match what I read in the Bible. I've heard talk about conflict, of battle, of the limits of winsomeness, of judgment, of arms, I haven't heard an echo of Paul's words here in Romans 9 or of Jesus' attitude in Luke 19.41 where he approached Jerusalem and wept over it. 
in our interactions with the lost, we should reflect God. And that means having a love for people and a focus on the gospel. So we should know God. You want to know him. You should reflect God. And lastly, you can trust God. Because maybe we're hesitant that if we adopt that strategy, things won't turn out the way we want them. Well, Paul writes Romans 9 to 11 to address the problem of Israel's unbelief. He has personal sorrow over Israel's current state. But this is not just a personal problem Paul addresses in Romans 9 through 11. Rather, the unbelief of Israel raises questions about the reliability of God and his promises. I mean, just look one more time at the blessings that Paul rehearses concerning Israel in verses 4 through 5. They have an identity as God's people. They are God's adopted children. They have received God's covenants. They worship God. They possess promises. They are children of Abraham. Do any of those sound familiar from our study of Romans? In Romans 2, we learned that believers are true Israelites. In Romans 4, we learned that we are Abraham's children. In Romans 8, we learned we are God's adopted children. In 12.1, Paul will admonish us to give God our true and proper worship, which is the same word for worship here in verse 4. We often talk about the new covenant. Romans 8 climax with a series of powerful promises. In other words, many of the blessings that Paul rehearses here overlap with the blessings we enjoy in Christ. So on the one hand, that's encouraging. What the law couldn't do, God in Christ has done. But maybe, just maybe, someone would wonder, what does Israel's unbelief imply about God's power and promises for me? Have they in some way failed Israel? And if they have failed Israel, will they fail Christians as well? Could a Christian be ashamed in the end because God didn't fulfill his promises? It's in order to address those concerns that Paul writes what he does in Romans 9 through 11. And just notice before he close how he starts his answer to these questions in verse 6. In light of all these concerns, Paul declares, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And Paul will go on to back up his claim. He will show God has been faithful to his people. God has been faithful to his promises. He will be faithful to his people and his promises, and therefore we can trust him. And interestingly, Paul's method for addressing our concerns will be to tell Israel's story one more time. And you'll see this as we go through the chapters. We have references to Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Rebekah and their twins, Moses and Pharaoh, the prophets, and the hopes of the last days. Sounds like a flyby of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Well, why tell that story again? I mean, isn't that the problem? That story has gotten stuck. But the point of all these retellings of the story is to move the story forward. 
You tell that story up to a certain point, and you figure out where it's going next. Maybe it took some turns we didn't expect. But Paul will think and pray his way into the next part of the story. And he will be carried along by the main principles. This is what God is doing in Christ to fulfill his saving purposes. And it's the same story that will carry your life and your church and where you live in your future. Because after all, if we think back at Paul's initial prayer that he could be cursed, perhaps he w- would stop short of praying it because there's already one who is cursed for us. And because Christ was cursed for us, and because Christ was cut off from God for us, everything that needs to happen for people to be saved and for God's story to go forward has happened. And God has raised him from the dead. And that's the story that God is going to tell us. So let's give thanks to God. Let's rejoice in that. And let's come and commune with our Christ at his table. Pray with me, friends. Lord, we thank you for your great salvation. That Christ was cursed for us. That in our place condemned he stood. That your glory might happen and that your salvation might happen, that we might be saved. So I pray for our church. I pray for the folks here in our church that they would know you and that they would enjoy you. They would rest in you, that they would rejoice in you, that they would worship you and that they would serve you and that you would help us to be conformed to your image in our heart and our attitude and our actions and in our words. And above all, Lord, as we continue to follow you into the future, whichever way you lead, that you would help us to trust you and that we would love you, trust you, obey you, and rejoice in you. So thank you for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.